have all kinds of uh, disasters that take place in the world today. We have volcanoes. We have earthquakes that occur. But the biggest problem that we have is man's behavior. And because of man's behavior, we have very difficult times ahead of us. In fact, we're privileged to live during what will really be the most interesting time in man's history, the climax of the ages. And that means that the good news is that there's a better world coming, and we look forward to that world. But before Christ returns, we're in for some very difficult years. And when we look at what's happening in our world today, sometimes it's very deceptive. We came in today, and everybody was out front enjoying the vitamin D and the sunshine, really enjoying the opportunity to fellowship outside and be out there in the warmth of the sun. Not that way every place, but it certainly was here. And that can be very deceptive as to what's happening in the world because it is a big world and because there are things that are happening that are major events. Before Christ returns, as I said, we're in for some very difficult years. And all of my younger years, as was the case for those of you who are my age and even younger, uh, we lived under the shadow of a mushroom cloud called a nuclear bomb. And having grown up on strategic air command bases much of my uh, life, we always knew that we would be ground zero when you have a missile base, when you have a base with B-47s and then B-52s that are carrying those bombs, and those bombs are stored in facilities at those bases. You know that if war breaks out, that's ground zero. So the last thing that I want to do and bring some things out to you today is to put our young people under the same kind of cloud. Because as young people, we take things very seriously and sometimes in a different way without the, the uh, context that our parents have. And we hear something that's bad and we can take it and make it even worse. We have a lot of young people that are terrified of climate change. And there may be change of climate. In fact, the fact is that there's always changing climate. And yet, you can have these young individuals that are used as pawns by individuals who fly all over the world in their private jets and meet and have their all their luxuries of this life. And they get these young people to scare everybody else that we're, you know, that disaster is coming because of what we're doing. Now, that may be the case. We don't know. But it is interesting that if you go back, it was an inconvenient truth by Mr. Al Gore, the movie that got him a, uh, what, a, a Nobel Peace Prize, I believe it was. I'm not sure how that brought peace to the world. How many years ago was that? How many years was it before New York City was going to be under three feet of water or whatever it was? You know, if you go back, living a little bit longer, you can go back and you remember when it was global cooling back in the 70s. And then it was global warming, and now it's global or climate change because it kind of covers everything. 
And every 10 years uh, go by, uh, they come up with something new that everything is going to be disastrous. 1975, uh, famine, 1975, some of the same people, uh, Paul Ehrlich, I believe, was, was involved in that. And yes, things are going to happen in our world, but we need to understand the real cause of them. And sometimes these activists make us fearful of things that we don't need to be fearful of. But the nuclear cloud is something that uh, is something to be concerned about. And as we stood outside today and enjoyed the sunshine, we were a long way from the Ukraine and areas that are being bombed and uh, shelled and uh, where people are being blown apart and people are dying. We're a long way from it. But even though we know that trying times will come, the message that I have for you ultimately is that it will end well for those who trust in God. It will end well for those who trust in God, who trust in God and do God's will. So in today's sermon, we're going to reflect on the reality of where our world is heading But I also want to encourage you, especially our young people here, that no matter how bad it looks at different times going forward, and that could be just in your life in general, or it could be in a world uh, view, that if you truly put God and His work first in your life, it will be well with you. It will work out well in the end. And... Forgetting the world situation in your life, you're going to face many times when things are going to look bad. Tragedies happen in life. But if we trust in God, it will work out well in the end. So where are we today? I've quoted this before from The Sun Also Rises by Ernest Hemingway, where there is a question asked by Bill of how... Uh, he had gone bankrupt. And Mike answered two ways, gradually, then suddenly. Now, our world has been going along gradually for quite a long period of time. We could even go back well over a century with some of the philosophies of the previous centuries. Uh, We have Charles Darwin's book on the origin of species, which began to change people's view of God or the need for God. We have philosophers that had very different ideas from those that are propounded and not propounded, but are given to us in Scripture. And so things were going along fairly normally for most of us. Now, there was World War I and there was World War II. Those are pretty good glitches in the, the cycle of things in life. But for most of us, life has been pretty good on the world scene. But then in 2020, we had the first pandemic in 100 years, uh, something that our grandparents might have experienced back in 1918. But we had this COVID virus hit. Some say it wasn't a pandemic. There's all kinds of stuff out there. I'm not going to get into all the ramifications of it, other than to say that it changed our world. It was a bright, sunny day like today. And within a matter of days, our world had changed. 
everything was shutting down. I remember traveling around the world in 2020, in February, and it was just beginning to dawn on people that this was a serious problem. And by March, things were shutting down. And it was only recently that China opened up because they had a strict shutdown. Was it maybe a month ago that they opened up? Two months ago? I don't know. I can't remember exactly. But that was only three years ago, less than three years ago, when all that happened and our lives changed. The economies of the world changed. Just heard in the news that CVS and what's the other one? I forget. A couple of the uh, uh, drug stores don't have enough workers to keep them going the long hours that they had before. We find that there are a lot of ramifications to what's happened here in the last couple of years. Nothing has been quite the same since then, but we're kind of getting back to normal. But two years after COVID hit, Russia invaded Ukraine, February of 2022. It's been less than a year since that invasion occurred. That invasion was supposed to be quick and easy. I think that most of the world thought it was that way. Certainly Russia thought it would be that way. And I think most of our pundits here in the United States on the news and everything were saying the same thing, that this would be over in a matter of days or maybe a couple weeks. But as we've seen, it has grown into a proxy war between Russia, with China, Iran, North Korea, and others on their side against the NATO countries in the West on the other side. And it's become much more serious than it was at the beginning. At the beginning, it looked like it was just a bad situation for the Ukrainians. But what we see is that we are sleepwalking into a far more dangerous situation. And this is not something that's never happened before. This is the way wars start very much like fires. You have a spark, and it starts a little fire, and the wind picks up, and pretty soon you have a raging forest or brush fire that destroys and devours huge swaths of land. And with the situation in Ukraine, it started rather small, but step by step is becoming more serious. The following, following reports, but I'll read several of them, are not exaggerations. But they should be rather stunning to us. This headline, for example, World War III has begun, says Kremlin State Media, after the sinking of Russian warship Moskva. That was April. Uh, 15th of 2022. That was less than two months after the war started. The Kremlin was saying that that was the beginning of World War III. Russian state television media Friday declared that World War III had already started after the sinking of the naval vessel Moskva in the Ukrainian war. Moscow warned Friday it would step up missile attacks on Kiev in response to what it said were serious across the border, uh, authorities across the border, the day after its Black Sea naval flagship sank. Olga Skabieva, one of Putin's top media figures, 
bizarrely claimed. Now, this shows how sometimes our Western media has uh, sometimes fails to realize the gravity of something. It says that she bizarrely claimed that the war in Ukraine had escalated into a war against NATO. Now, as we sit here today, that's not so bizarre. What it's escalated into can safely be called World War III. That's entirely for sure. Now we are definitely fighting against NATO infrastructure, if not NATO itself. We need to recognize that. Again, that goes back two months, less than two months after the war began. Emmanuel Todd, uh, this is another headline, World War III has already begun. But this is the 16th of January, 2023, uh, just a few days ago. The article says the World War, I'm sorry, the Third World War has already started, according to one of France's leading intellectuals, Emmanuel Todd. Speaking to Le Figaro, Le Figaro last week, the anthropologist and historian claimed that the West, too, has entered into an existential conflict. You know, it became very clear as it began to escalate that Mr. Putin could not afford to lose. I think that should be clear to everybody. He cannot afford to lose. But the bringing in of certain weapons, Patriot missiles and now tanks, Western tanks, have really made it an existential conflict for the West. How in the world can the West lose this war? And what kind of a compromise can occur? The article goes on to say it's obvious that the Ukraine conflict, which started as a limited territorial war and escalated to a global economic confrontation between the whole of the West on the one hand and Russia and China on the other hand, has become a world war. Now, it's not a world war, a shooting world war yet. But what we see is things start small, and by increments, they begin to build. And we see a war now that's not going to be a few weeks, but it could stretch into literally years. And what kind of escalation is going to take place from there? From the UK Mail Online, January 25th, a couple days ago, three days ago, Russia today warned that Germany's decision to send dozens of modern tanks to Ukraine is extremely dangerous and will take the conflict to a new level. Putin protagonist uh, Yevgeny Setanovsky, actually it's like Satanovsky, President of the Moscow Institute of the Middle East told the Waldman Line Channel that nuclear-tipped missiles should be used on the center of German democracy. He said German tanks, which crosses on their armor, with crosses on their armor, will again march across Ukraine, attacking Russian soldiers. A reference back to World War II. I have a natural reaction to this. The Soviet Union bombed Berlin in 1941. And to me, this is a signal that the Reichstag, or Bundestag, which now replaces Reichstag, 
simply should not remain standing any longer. Flat, slightly radioactive, melted-down ground will remain in its place. Meanwhile, Putin's favorite protagonist, Vladimir Solov, Solov, yeah, whatever, also ranted about the move, being proof in Russian eyes that Germany has directly joined the war. Now, this is propaganda, of course, but it's more than propaganda. This is how they would see it. Reading an article this last week about a man that probably knew more about Russia than anybody else, and he even addressed the subject of Ukraine and advised decades ago to stay out of that. I'd like to read, I'll get some scriptures here in a little bit, but I'd like to read from an article here. Predictions by Russia's Medvedev. Dmitry Medvedev. And this is one of his predictions, that a fourth Reich will be made up of Germany, Poland, and various other countries. In other words, he is predicting the rise of the Fourth Reich for 2023. That does seem a little bit early, but at the same time, he begins to see where all of this is heading, whether it's 2023 or 24 or 25. Reading from the article, this is from the Jerusalem Post. The Fourth Reich will be created encompassing the territory of Germany and its satellites, Poland, the Baltic States, Czechia, Slovakia, the Kiev Republic, and other outcasts, said Dmitry Medvedev. He's the former president of Russia and a staunch supporter of the war in Ukraine. And he said that on uh, Monday night. That was uh, December the 27th, uh, a couple days after that. Now, that's quite a statement there, and it's quite interesting because what we have looked at from Bible prophecy is that there will be a combine of nations in Europe, especially surrounding Germany, that will make up what we call the beast power. Now, we don't know who that individual is that will bring them together, and we also know that the, the, uh, the woman is going to ride that beast, and so we don't know who that leader is going to be, that charismatic religious leader. They're still yet to come. And so we don't need to run scared and think that this is all going to happen tomorrow. There is a lot that has to happen yet. It takes time to build armies. It takes time to build the, the weapons of war and gearing up. But when you think back on, nuclear, on uh, Second World War, look how fast... Things can go when nations put their hearts into it. This was the fourth of a list of ten predictions Medvedev made for 2023, which he shared on Twitter. His economic predictions, several of, of, of his other predictions related to economic and financial concerns, sending, including that oil prices would rise to $150 a barrel. He also claimed that all the largest stock markets and financial activity will leave the U.S. and Europe and move to Asia. He further stated that Bretton Woods' system of monetary management will collapse, leading to the International Monetary Fund and World Bank crash 
Uh, the euro and the dollar will stop circulating as global reserve currencies, etc. So uh, it, it's rather interesting the things that he is predicting there, and some of it seems to be a little bit over the top. But we need to be very careful not to just write off his predictions, and I'll show you why. When it comes to European nations, Medvedev claimed that the U.K. will rejoin the European Union, leading to its downfall. The European Union will collapse after the U.K. returns, he said. Euro will drop out of use as the former EU currency. He said that Poland and Hungary will take control of western parts of what he says of the formerly existing Ukraine, while Northern Ireland will separate from the U.K. and join the Republic of Ireland. Alongside his prediction of the formation of the Fourth Reich, Medvedev said, war will break out between France and the Fourth Reich. Europe will be divided. Poland repartitioned in the process. He also predicts civil war in the United States. Now, that seems rather wild, but let me read something else here, because this came out several days earlier. This goes back to December the 25th, and actually Friday, December the 23rd, so this is several days earlier. The title of this article from Asia Times, A Germany-China-Russia Triangle on Ukraine. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken probably thought that it in his self-appointed role as the world's policeman, it was his prerogative to check out what was going on among Germany, China, and Russia that he wasn't privy to. However, Blinken's call to Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi on Friday turned out to be a fiasco. Now, of course, this is Asia Times, so they're going to slant it the way they want to. Most certainly, his intention was to gather details on two high-level exchanges that Chinese President Xi Jinping had on successive days last week. With German President Frank Walter Steinmeier and the chairman of the United Russia Party and former Russian President Dmitry Medvedev, respectively. In other words, Dmitry Medvedev had a high-level meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping, and also involved was a meeting the day before with Frank Walter Steinmeier of Germany with Xi Jinping. Blinken likely made an intelligent guess at Steinmeier's phone call to Xi on Tuesday and Medvedev's surprise visit to Beijing and his meeting with Xi on Wednesday might not have been coincidental. Medvedev's mission would have been to transmit some highly sensitive message from Russian President Vladimir Putin to Xi. Recent reports had indicated that Moscow and Beijing were working on meeting, a meeting between Putin and Xi later this month. There's a lot more to this, but I'd like to just uh, focus a little bit on uh, something here toward the end of the article Uh, the article is, is trying to set Xi Jinping as uh, the one who can broker a peace deal between the two sides. But 
It says, that said, discussing peacemaking in Ukraine with China is a daring move on the part of the German leadership. At the present juncture, when the Biden administration is deeply engaged in a proxy war with Russia and has every intention to support Ukraine for as long as it takes. But there's another side to it. Germany has been internal, internalizing its anger and humiliation during the past several months. Germany cannot but feel that it has been played in the countdown to the Ukraine conflict, something particularly galling for a country that is genuinely Atlanticist in its foreign policy orientation. German ministers have expressed displeasure publicly that American oil companies are brazenly exploiting the ensuing energy crisis to make windfall profits by selling gas at three to four times the domestic price in the U.S. Germany also fears that the Biden administration's Inflation Reduction Act, building on foundational climate and clean energy investments, may lead to the migration of German industry to the U.S. And the unkindest cut of all has been the destruction of the Nord Stream uh, gas pipeline. Germany must have a fairly good idea as to the forces that were behind that terrorist act, but it cannot even call them out and must suppress its sense of humiliation and indignation. And you know, it's interesting, I, I heard from one of our members in Europe, uh, and he just pointed out, everybody knows the U.S. blew up the pipeline. That's the view over there. Now, some say that the British were involved, <clears throat> the British-American involvement there, but when you stop and think about it, what sense would it make for Russia to blow up their own pipeline? they just cut off the, the gas. That'd have the same effect without destroying it. You know, the U.S. is getting into this war in a lot of ways that we may not uh, fully appreciate. Remember the headline from NBC News, January the 27th, 2017? Five years ago, almost five years to the day, almost six years to the day, well... Former Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev warned Friday that, quote, it all looks as if the world is preparing for war. You know, our, our days of uh, everything being nice and comfortable will come to an end. They may not come to an end this year, but we're looking at some, some major shifts in the world, geopolitical shifts. We may see a, a total revamping of what we think of as Europe. It won't be the first time. We think that in our modern world that can't change, but borders change in Europe. They have. My wife uh, used to always say that she was Russian, and then we're told she was Ukrainian and maybe Polish. It just depended on who was fighting over that territory at the time. It's hard to know. That whole part of Europe has changed its borders many times. In Joel, the third chapter, it talks about a time in the future and what it's leading up to 
is yet ahead. It's, it's not something that we're ready for because it's leading up to the day of the Lord. But things have to start before, you know, the day of the Lord begins. It says, proclaim this. This is Joel, the third chapter in verse 9. It says, proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords. That's the opposite of what is at the United Nations where it quotes from uh, Scripture, uh, Micah or, or Isaiah. You know, uh, beat your swords into plowshares. This is the opposite. Beat your plowshares into swords. Turn your industry over to weapons of destruction as opposed to agricultural weapons. And your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble and come, all you nations, and gather together all around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. And it talks about going down to eventually what we call Armageddon. It's really the battle of the great day of God Almighty. That's what it's preparing for. But these things don't happen overnight. It takes years to build up weapons. And what we see right now is a buildup of military hardware uh, such as the world hasn't seen for some time. We have an article, AP report, January 23rd. Japan's leader prioritizes arms buildup and also reversing low birth rate. They realize that a low birth rate is a problem for Japan as it is for China and other countries, many other countries. But they prioritize, the new leader there, prioritizes arms buildup. And so what we have is an arms buildup all over the world that is taking place. And we have treaties being made behind closed doors. Sometimes they come out in the open, sometimes they're closed doors. So we must ask the question, why is this happening now? Why is our world suddenly going in a very bad direction. The book of Hosea, in the fourth chapter, really tells us why. There are so many scriptures that tell us why, that I could read those the rest of the day, on end of tomorrow. But let's just look at this one here, Hosea 4 and verse 1. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel, for the Eternal brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There's no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. Now, the knowledge of God is rapidly fading away. There's an article that will be coming out in the next Tomorrow's World magazine. I hope all of you do read the magazines because there's a lot of interesting and important information there. Talking about religion in uh, the U.K., or the lack thereof. Religion was pretty well dead when I was there in the, in the uh, 50s, and uh, even more so today. The only religions that aren't dead are Islam and various other religions. But as far as the Anglo-Saxon Christianity is dying, for the first time, Less than 50% of the people claim Christianity as their religion. 
And that's just a claim. It's not talking about how well they practice it. Therefore, the land will mourn, and everyone who dwells there will waste away. With the beasts of the field and the birds of the air, even the fish of the sea will be taken away. And many of the stocks of fish in the oceans are being taken away. There's no doubt about that. I just heard on the radio coming here, I'd like to catch the news on the way. California has had their sixth mass shooting in a month. January 16th in Goshen, California, six were killed by gunfire. January 21st, five days later, Monterey Park, 12 killed, nine injured. January 23rd, Half Moon Bay, seven killed, one injured. The same day in Oakland, California, one killed, four injured, and there have been two more since the 23rd. Last year, we saw 647 mass shootings, meaning four or more people killed or injured, not including the shooter. 647. We've already had one here in North Carolina. I forget where it was, but already had one here. You know, Gavin Newsom tweeted this. That's the governor of California. At the hospital meeting with victims of a mass shooting, when I get pulled away to be briefed about another shooting, this time in Half Moon Bay, tragedy upon tragedy. That's what he wrote, tragedy upon tragedy. Let's notice Ezekiel 7. Ezekiel 7. And we'll just notice verse 23. It says, Make a chain, for the land is filled with crimes of blood, and the city is full of violence. Now, Ezekiel is talking about Jerusalem there, but let's just go back briefly to the fourth chapter of Ezekiel and remind everyone of this. I think that most of you are aware of it, but... You know, time goes by, and we, we don't realize how long it's been since we spoke on the subject. But here in verse 1 of Ezekiel 4, it says, You also, son of man, take a clay tablet and lay it uh, before you and portray on it a city, Jerusalem. So he is to take his clay tablet, and he's, he's to play a little war game, kind of like I did when I was a kid. We had these little green plastic soldiers, and we'd take rubber bands and various things to attack each other's forces that we'd line up there in a battlefield. Lay siege against it, build a siege wall against it, and heap up a mound against it, set camps against it also, and place battering rams against it all around. Moreover, take for yourself as an iron plate and set it as an iron wall between you and the city. Set your face against it, and it shall be besieged, and you shall lay siege against it. Now, what is this all about? Why was he to do this? This will be a sign to the house of Israel. Now, when you go back to the second and third chapters, he was to take a message to the house of Israel. The 33rd chapter, we know, is he was set as a watchman to the house of Israel. 
And yet many people don't realize that there is a difference between the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And it's interesting in this very context in verse 5, it says, For I have laid on you the years of their iniquity according to the number of the days, uh, 390 days, so you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. And then verse 6, when you have completed them, lie again on your right side, then you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Judah forty days. I have laid on you a day for a year for each year. Ezekiel knew the difference between the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And all you have to do is read the, the book and you realize that it's very clear that there was a difference. He even talks at, in chapter 37 about taking two sticks and one for the house of Israel and the other for the house of Judah and bringing them together yet in the future, no longer being two nations anymore. So what Ezekiel was writing about was what was happening in his day and certain warnings for Jerusalem that hadn't yet fallen. He was already a captive in, in Babylon. But all of that was a type for the house of Israel. So when we read there in chapter 7, to make a chain, for the land is filled with crimes of blood, is that not what Gavin Newsom was talking about here? I'm at the hospital dealing with one crime of blood, and all of a sudden here's another one. As he calls it, tragedy upon tragedy. Let's notice chapter 4 of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, the fourth chapter. You know, it's interesting in reading through some of the prophets that bloodshed is so prominent. It talks about bloodshed over and over again as being one of the serious crimes of Israel and Judah. And here in the fourth chapter of uh, Jeremiah, in verse 19, it says, Oh, my soul, my soul, I am pained in my heart. My heart makes a noise in me. I cannot hold my peace because you have heard, O oh my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Destruction upon destruction is cried, for the whole land is plundered. Suddenly my tents are plundered and my curtains in a moment. How long will I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? You know, it's talking about a time when you know, of warfare. So it's not talking about the, the necessarily the things that we're seeing in our world today, but in terms of in our cities. But we do have destruction upon destruction, tragedy upon tragedy, a chain where you have links of one linking one to another, or it's just one right after another that are taking place there. In Isaiah, the 30th chapter, Let's notice what Isaiah warns for the end time. Isaiah 30. And this is a passage that we often read. We don't always read the whole thing, though. In verse 8, it says, Isaiah 30, verse 8, Now go, write it before them on a tablet, and note it on a scroll that for time to come forever and ever. In other words, this is for the future. That this is a rebellious people. Lying children. Do we see any truth anymore? It's so hard to sort out between all the propaganda between various factions and various uh, ideologies. Lying children. Children will not, 
who will not hear the law of the Lord. That's what we have today. We have a whole generation that doesn't want to hear anything about God. Now, there are exceptions, of course, but speaking in broad generalities there. Who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy to see, just tell us good things. Just want to hear good news all the time. Get out of the way, turn aside from the path, cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word, and we do despise, I say we, not you and I, but our nation as a whole despises the word of God, and especially when you get into some of the other countries. Australia's, you know, was, was the last of the Israelite countries, I think, to accept same-sex marriage, and now they, they're among the very worst, uh, censoring our programs time and again. Because he despises this word and trust in oppression and perversity and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach ready to fall, a bulge in a high wall whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. That's really saying the same thing. How did this happen? Two ways. Gradually and then suddenly. A breach in the wall, a bulge in the wall, it just slowly builds up. You may see a problem and oftentimes this is what happens with maintenance. We see a problem. It just gets a little worse, a little worse, a little worse. Oh, I can take care of that tomorrow. And then suddenly you've got a major problem. And he shall break it like the breaking of a potter's vessel. When it happens, there's not going to be much left to hold together, which is broken in pieces. He shall not spare. So there shall not be found among its fragments a shard, a little piece of the pottery to take fire from the hearth or to take water from the cistern. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved, in quietness and confidence shall be your strength. But you would not. No, we want to trust in our own devices to save us. And so he says here in verse 16, you said, no, for we will flee on horses. Therefore you shall flee, he says. And the people say, well, we're going to ride on swift horses. God's reply is, therefore, those who pursue you shall be swift. You know, we're coming up to a time when all of our sins are going to come crashing down upon us. We've been building up slowly. I think we've really entered the beginning of the suddenly phase. It's, there are many things yet to happen, so please don't misunderstand. In Matthew, the 24th chapter... Matthew 24, there's a time to be sober and to recognize that we need to get serious about what we, what we believe and what we, how we live our lives. In Matthew 24, this is a very famous passage. We're all familiar with this Olivet Prophecy, and we're very well aware of the latter part of it. He says here that, um, verse 42, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, 
that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief was coming, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, I suppose when we say the Son of Man is coming, we could be talking about the very instant of his return. But but the whole sense of this, of what's gone before, is, is the time that is coming that is going to bring that about. And he says, you, you don't know. It's going to come at a time... In fact, it says, therefore, you shall be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. We can think that, well, we have a long time to go, but maybe we don't have that far to go. Uh, Again, you don't build an army overnight. But what happens if suddenly Russia and Germany decide, well, we've had enough of this, and let's work together? What, what happens if these nations pull together? Some charismatic leader brings them together. We don't know. I think that what I'm beginning to see is that we better be ready for some surprises. Because we didn't expect, we read about it, we heard about pandemics, we didn't expect COVID and how it happened. We didn't expect that this little war in Ukraine would affect us that much. And right now, we're sitting here, as they say, fat, dumb, and happy. We're well fed. The sun is shining. It's a beautiful day. But so was, so was it a beautiful day, as I understand, in Hawaii on December the 7th, 1941. Things happen suddenly. I don't think that we're going to be evaded overnight. I'm not trying to rush and get ahead of the game here. But we better be ready for some surprises because things are beginning to move at a far faster rate. It goes on to say in verse 48, But if that evil servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his company and begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him at an hour that he is not aware of, and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, this is saying that at the very end that there are going to be people who think the Lord has delayed his coming. Now, we thought that Christ would come back in the last century, more specifically about 1975. Many people thought that was going to happen. We thought that our work would finish in 1972 didn't happen. We've gone nearly 50 years since that time. We're just short of 50 years since then. Since 72, we are over 50 years now. It didn't happen. Mr. McNair's sermon about Chicken Little, memorable sermon, how can you forget that one with his introduction about Chicken Little? is pointing out that, you know, that the, the day is coming when the sky will fall. And when it falls, it's going to be a shock to many people. There are going to be people, because this was written for the people of God to understand this, he's saying, look, keep your eyes open. It's going to come at a time you may not expect, but don't go out here and think, well, I've got plenty of time. I can party. I can do all these things. I can 
fornicate, I can commit adultery, I can, you know, look at porn. I'll overcome that later. All the things that some individuals get involved in. We should not think that we're going to get by with that. Because people who take that approach are going to be surprised. He'll come back sooner than they expect. Don't try to time it. It's kind of like the stock market. Those who try to time the stock market often lose money. Don't try to time Christ's return. Just know the the general time frame of what we're looking at here. Now, there is good news for those who obey God. We, we won't know the time exactly. We won't know all the details. We, we know the, the framework of prophecy. But there are certain things that we can know and that we can rest in, and that is that if we serve God, if we do His will, if we do His work, in fact, in this very passage, He asks the question, verse 45, Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them meat or food in due season? Blesses that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. In other words, doing his work, providing the food, as it were, for the, the world to feed mankind with the truth. That's the one that is going to be, you know, is going to be protected and saved by God when he comes back, or Christ when he comes back. You know, stressful times are not unprecedented for the people of God. Every one of us has stressful times in our lives. And sometimes those stresses can seem overwhelming. Loss of a child, the loss of a mate, loss of a job when you have several mouths to feed that you're responsible for. All those things can be difficult. But there are times that the people of God have gone through that have been tremendously stressful. As an example, we were reading Jeremiah earlier. Let's go back there to Jeremiah. And let's read what it says in chapter 15 and verses 10 and 11. Jeremiah 15. In verse 10, we find that Jeremiah, well, we know he was a young man. Uh, he, He was probably 20 to 25 years of age when he began Nobody knows for sure, but he says he was a young man, or I am a youth, which would almost indicate that he had barely had entered into adulthood at 20. He was thinking he was too young. And God said, don't say that you're a youth. This is what you're going to do. But he felt the stress of his day, of the job that he was given. He says, thus they have loved, I'm sorry, where are we, Fifteenth, uh, the 15th chapter, in verse 10, it says, Woe is me, my mother, that you have borne me, a man of strife and a man of contention to the whole earth. He felt like he was going against the whole earth, the whole world. He hadn't, he wasn't that old. And for a young person thrust into the job that he was given, you can understand why he felt that way. He was, you know, it was so overwhelming to him at times. He says, I have neither lent for interest nor have men lent to me for interest. Every one of them curses me. I haven't done any harm to them, but they're all, every one of them is cursing me, he says. And what does God tell him? Verse 11. 
the Lord said, Surely it will be well with your remnant. Surely I will cause the enemy to intercede with you in the time of adversity and in the time of, of affliction. Now, this was probably years in the future. He preached for quite a few years there. You can read from the time of Josiah on down through the other kings all the way to the time of Zedekiah when Judah went into captivity. There were a couple of kings that reigned 11 years there, uh, Zedekiah and uh, Jehoiakim, I believe it was. And uh, Josiah, he was, what, the 13th or 18th year of, of uh, Josiah. So you had a number of years. You had probably close to 40 years but this is probably in the early time, we don't know exactly, but when he was fairly young, and, and God said, look, surely it will be well with you, or with your remnant, surely I will come, cause the enemy to intercede with you in the time of adversity and the time of affliction. Now, did God keep that promise for Jeremiah? Well, let's go over to the 39th chapter, Jeremiah 39. A lot has happened over the years. He'd been put in prison. He'd been put in a dungeon, sinking in the mire, as it's called, or spoken of there. And Nebuchadnezzar comes in, and he kills the king and his sons and a lot of others. But notice verse 11. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, gave charge concerning Jeremiah to Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard. So, somehow, Nebuchadnezzar, the great king Nebuchadnezzar, was aware of Jeremiah. When people defected and they interviewed them, they probably said, why did you defect? Well, Jeremiah told us that our country is going to be overthrown and if we defect, it'll be better for us. But he knew of him somehow. He says, verse 12, Take him and look after him and do him no harm, but do to him just as he says to you. So Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, sent uh, well, several people, difficult to pronounce, and all the king of Babylon's chief officers, verse 14. Then they sent someone to take Jeremiah from the court of the prison, and committed him to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, that he should take him home, so he dwelt among the people. He saved Jeremiah. And that was a time of, as far as they were concerned, world war. It was a very difficult time. But God spared him. But he wasn't the only one that God spared. There are other individuals that God spared. In fact, you can just read on. Well, let's, let's go back to the 38th chapter. 38th chapter of Jeremiah and verse 7. We see that Jeremiah is put in the dungeon. Actually, verse 6, it says, They took Jeremiah and cast him into the dungeon of Malchiah, the king's son, which is in the court of the prison, and they let Jeremiah down with ropes and in the dungeon there was no water but mire. So Jeremiah sank in the mire. Now, he probably didn't have a lot of food to start with uh, because the siege had been going on for some time. And now he's in this cold, damp dungeon 
sinking in mud or mire or whatever is there. And so, verse 7, Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, one of the eunuchs, who was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah in the dungeon. And when the king was sitting at the gate of Benjamin, Ebed-Melech went out of the king's house and spoke to the king, saying, My lord the king, these men have done evil in all that they have done to Jeremiah the prophet, whom they have cast into the dungeon, and he is likely to die from hunger in the place where he is. For there is no more bread in the city." Then the king commanded, it's interesting, Zedekiah is quite an interesting individual. He, he vacillates back and forth, can't decide which side to be on. So the king commanded Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, saying, Take uh, from, from here thirty men with you, and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the dungeon before he dies. So Ebed-Melech took the men with him, who went to the house of the king under the treasury, and took from there old clothes, and old rags, and he let them down by ropes into the dungeon to Jeremiah. And Ebed-Melech, the opium, said to Jeremiah, Please put these old clothes and rags under your old King James armholes. It's the old King James armpits. Under the ropes, and Jeremiah did so, and they pulled him out of the dungeon, and Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison until the city was taken. Now, back in the 39th chapter, Ebed-Melech would be rewarded for his action. And no doubt, it must have been a courageous act because he had to take 30 men with him. It didn't take that many men to pull him out of the dungeon. But obviously, they were standing guard. This was not a popular thing to do among many of the elites there in uh, the court. So meanwhile, the word came to the Lord, came, uh, word of the Lord had come to Jeremiah, this is verse 15, while he was shut up in the court of the prison, saying, Go and speak to Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, saying, Thus says the Eternal of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring my words upon this city for adversity and not for good. And they shall be performed in that day before you. But I will deliver you in that day, says the Eternal. And you shall not be given into the hand of the men of whom you are afraid. For I will surely deliver you, and you shall not fall by the sword. But your life shall be a prize to you, because you have put your trust in me, says the Eternal. So here was a second person during that siege of Jerusalem and during the fall of Jerusalem, which was a horrendous time that God spared. But there's more. Over in the 45th chapter, and this is an interesting study here, one man has a whole chapter reserved for him. Short chapter, only five verses, but nevertheless a short chapter. And he was, this is Baruch, I say Baruch, but it's Baruch. It's the emphasis on the, on the first syllable. It says, The word that Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Baruch, the son of Neriah, when he was, had written these words in a book at the instruction of Jeremiah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim. Remember, he wrote the words of the book, and then the king cut them up and, and destroyed them, and he had to write them again and write more. How would you like to take dictation and write all of 
the book of Jeremiah, all 52 chapters. Wow. And, and he also had to take it to the, the leaders because Jeremiah was not able to go. So his life was on the line from time to time. And to be associated with Jeremiah would not have been a good thing. Verse 2, thus says the Eternal, the God of Israel, to you, O Barak, you said, Woe is me now, for the Lord has, or the Eternal has added grief to my sorrow. I fainted in my sighing, and I find no rest. So we see that there was great stress on this individual as well. Jeremiah had great stress. He wanted to die. Uh, Ebed-Melech was fearful of what was going to happen. And yet he overcame his fear to save Jeremiah. And now we find Barak, who is also fearful. Woe is me. I fainted in my sighing and I find no rest. Thus you shall say to him, thus says the Eternal, Behold, what I have built I will break down. And what I have planted I will pluck up, that is, this whole land. And this is the interesting part. It says, And do you seek great things for yourself? So in the midst of all this that's going on, you get the sense that Barak was a little disappointed in his lot in life. That, that perhaps he wanted his time to, to make his mark in, in the world. He said, do you seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them, for behold, I will bring adversity on all flesh, says the Eternal. But I will give you your life to, give your life to you as a prize in all places, wherever you go. And Barak was going to go to different places. And he said, I will give you your life as a prize to you. So don't be worried about the things of this world right now. Just be thankful that your life is going to be spared, and I'll be with you at all times. Remember Daniel and his three friends? They'd gone into captivity during the same general period of time. They were part of Judah's captivity. And we find that God took care of them, didn't He? They put their trust in Him, whether it be Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into a fiery furnace, or all the stress, all the things that happened to them, God took care of them, didn't He? What about Joseph? That's another wonderful study. Remember Joseph when he was... 13 years of age, or 17, forget, maybe 17. And he was sold into slavery, and he had to wait till he was 30 years of age before he got out of, uh, of the mess that he was in. It was actually one mess after another. And all while he was trying to do what was right. Now, he was a little bit brash when he was young. He was a little bit uh, stuck on himself, perhaps. But he was hardworking, he was industrious, and you couldn't keep an industrious man down. He was doing what he, what he could do. But even when he obeyed God and didn't get involved with Potiphar's wife, which many young people would have given, uh, given into, he refused to, he ends up in prison for a number of years. So even when things seem to be going bad, or badly, it goes well in the end if you put God first. In Ezekiel, the ninth chapter, 
Again, this is talking about the house of Israel. But it's, it's talking most immediately about the fall of Jerusalem or the city of Jerusalem. But it's a type for the house of Israel. It's a sign for the house of Israel. We find here that that Ezekiel hears this uh, voice saying, let, verse 1, let those who have charge over the city draw near each with his deadly weapon in his hand. And suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate which faces north, each with his battle axe in his hand. And one man among them was clothed with linen and had a rider's inkhorn at his side. They went and they stood beside the bronze altar, verse 3, now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub, where it had been, to the threshold of the temple. And he called the man clothed with linen, who had the rider's inkhorn at his side. And the Eternal said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the forehead of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. What a apt description of our world today. You don't even know what to say anymore sometimes when you see the, the insanity of decisions that are being made in our, our country here. It's getting so bad now that in California they've got a law that they want to tax tax you if you leave the state. And every year on the same property that you, you'd owned or whatever, whether that flies, that's hard to know. But the very idea that they're going to do it, and New York's got something similar and a number of other states... And you look at our border situation, how nobody's that dumb. It's just, this is planned. They want it to come, you know, the people to come in from who knows where. We have no idea where these people are coming from. Well, we have some idea because they interview them and they're coming from countries all over the world. Uh, you've got all kinds of problems in our world today and you say, well, where is the common sense? What, what can you do other than just sigh and cry over the abominations and the, you know, the, the, these drag queens going into libraries and teaching little toddlers? I mean, how, how do you express that in, in some sort of way that you could, you know, with, with the words? You don't have the words for it. Some people do. I don't. So he says, to put a mark on them. To the others, he said in the hearing, go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare, nor have any pity. Utterly slay the old, the young, the maidens, the little children, the women. But do not come near anyone on whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the temple. So they began at the sanctuary. You know, God shows that he is going to protect those who are his. At that being said... What if you die? What if God allows you to be a martyr? What if God allows you to die? We, we know that it's going to be well with us in the end. But the fact is, we're all going to die. I don't want to shock anybody. don't want to bring up something you've never heard before. But I know that when you're young, you know that's going to happen, but it's so far away. And it kind of comes up gradually. And then suddenly, days go by. 
There's another article in the upcoming magazine talking about time. The seconds go by, the minutes go by, and time goes by. And suddenly we wake up and we say, hey, I'm old. (laughs) And I don't know how much longer I have. Uh, You know, don't grieve for me if something happens to me. I don't know that anything's going to right away, but it will eventually. And how eventually that is, I don't know. You can be young and don't know. So we're all going to die at some point in time. So what does it really matter in one sense how we die? I guess it matters because of the pain and the suffering we can go through. But, you know, I've thought about this. I'd rather be a martyr than to die of some long terminal illness. I'm not volunteering for either one. (laughs) But think about it. Ezekiel, I'm sorry, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, a lot of people misunderstand the message that Solomon was giving there, but when you read it carefully, you see that he understood that, yes, there is a future. But if you look at it just purely from a physical perspective of this life, if this is all there is, then it's a pretty bleak future. But he says here, the 8th chapter, verse 12, says, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him. So even Solomon, with all of his negativism that he describes there, says, I know that it will be well with those who fear before him. But it will not be well, verse 13, Uh, with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he does not fear before God. So if we fear God, if we do his will, we can be certain it's going to work out well somehow in the end. We don't know how. We don't know every twist and turn that's going to occur during this lifetime, especially in the years coming before us. But what I'm trying to say is that we need to be alert. We need to be awake to the fact that things are happening quickly. When when you have voices, and and the couple that I read there are not the only ones. There are others who are saying World War III has already begun. And it just, it's mission creep. Uh, We're not going to give them these, well, we will give them these weapons. No, we're not going to give them tanks. Well, we'll give them tanks. And pretty soon you get drawn into something there's like two fellows on the schoolyard, you know, two, two, two boys, and somehow they get locked into a little bit of controversy there, and neither one of them really wants to fight, but now a crowd is gathered around them, and how do they get out of it and save face? Does one walk away? Well, sometimes, but sometimes that's why they fight. And the consequences of fighting can be pretty drastic when you start talking about nuclear weapons and other weapons of mass destruction. We've got a situation right now in Europe, war in Europe once again, with German tanks that are going to be traveling against the Russians. They may not be 
you know, uh, piloted by the by uh, Germans yet. But how long will it be if we keep going? It is an ex- existential threat. It is a a threat to both sides. Neither side knows how to back down. Now, it may be that somebody will come up with a comprehensive solution that will satisfy everybody. But it's hard to see what that is. But out of that, you can almost be certain that we're going to see a transformation of Europe somehow to what the Bible says it's going to be, the beast power that rises up there. So let's keep watching. It's not our, it's not business as usual in the world. We've entered a very dangerous time, similar to that of the late 1930s leading up to World War II. The time for gradual seems to be coming to an end. We're now in the suddenly phase, or we're getting very close to it if we're not there. The end is not yet, but we must not be naive as to where this is leading. And now is not the time to fall asleep, to get caught up in worldly pursuits, or rush into bad decisions. But it will end well for those who put their trust in God and do the will of God.